Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is an interview with Kathleen Stone about her book, They Call Us Girls, Stories of Female Ambition from Suffrage to Mad Men. I hope you enjoy it. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Can you start by telling the audience about yourself and how you became interested in this project? Sure. Um, I am a lawyer by training, and I have worked as a lawyer for many years, um, beginning as a law clerk to a federal judge, then as a litigator in a large law firm, and then in-house at, in the legal department at a financial institution. And for me, writing is really career 2.0. I shifted away from law into being a full-time writer. And part of my impetus for doing that was in order to write this book. The book is really a fulfillment of a curiosity I had when I was a young girl. And in fact, I write about that in the, interu- in, in the introduction. I picture myself as I was at about age eight. It's a quiet, boring afternoon, and I'm sitting on the floor of the living room in my family's house, pulling my father's books off the bookshelf. And one that I pull off is the yearbook for his class in law school. He graduated from law school in 1950. And I look at the pictures of his classmates. They're overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly white, but there are a few women. And those women intrigue me. I want to know who are these women who would do something so unusual as to go to law school which is, was completely unknown in the neighborhood where I was growing up, where most of the women, like my mother, were home taking care of children. Many years later, well into my own legal career, um, I realized I was still curious about that generation of women, but not just those who became lawyers, but I, it was really a broader curiosity. I was interested in women of that generation who had gone into career, professional careers that were really dominated by men. And I wanted to know what made them think they could do such a thing. 
Um, and I, I began interviewing, first locating women to interview and then interviewing them. And the interviews with the women are really the backbone of the book. Now, what were some of the most notable restrictions that women faced during those early days in their professions? Well, the women of this era, they all began their adult professional lives in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And sex discrimination, along with racial discrimination and other kinds of discrimination, was perfectly legal. Um, The Civil Rights Act of 1964 hadn't been passed when they all began their careers. Um, so, So there was that. There was no legal protection against discrimination. Um, There was also really strong cultural expectations that women would be at home taking care of the family. And if they were going to work outside the home, and many did, in fact, um, they would be in jobs that were deemed appropriate for women. And by that time, by the the middle of the 20th century, certain professional careers were dominated by women. I'm thinking specifically of nursing, teaching, and secretarial work. Um, but And th- that was okay for women to take those jobs, but women were not supposed to take jobs in law, medicine, science, executive leadership, for instance. Um, so there was a strong cultural expectation about, about what women were supposed to do some of the and you know that played out in different ways for the various women. One woman who was in a PhD program in physics at the University of Chicago was told by her advisor, "Women don't belong in this profession in this program at all." Um, so she had to deal with that. Um, when one of the women, Dr. Muriel Petioni, became a physician. Less than five percent of the women in the of the doctors in the country were female, um, and she was a black doctor. And even the percentage for black women to be doctors was even lower than five percent. So she had to she had a lot of you know hurdles to jump through in order to prove herself. Um, Cordelia Hood, who became an intelligence analyst when during World War II with the Office of Strategic Services. Before she could get hired, she had to pass a typing test. She was as well-educated and as thoroughly traveled as any of the men in the agency, um, and none of them had to take a typing test, but she had to show that she could type. So those are some of the kinds of um, challenges that these women faced in getting into their careers. Now, what were some of the similarities that the women in your book share? Well, of course, they're all of the same generation. Um, I think the earliest birth date of the women in the book is 1913, and the most recent birth date is 1932. So they all came of age at essentially the same time, which was sort of an, it was actually an interesting time period from a woman's history point of view. Um, and they all had, a, they had ambition and a sense of agency about themselves, of what of how they would take control of their futures. And that played out in different ways, but they all had, I guess, agency, self-confidence, 
um, and ambition all wrapped up together. I would say those are the, the similarities. Um, education was also important to all of them. Um, the one who, the only one who didn't go to college was an artist and children's book author. However, she grew up in the Greenwich Village in a home where both of her parents were um, contemporary, modern artists, and they were, in fact turned out to be very pivotal in the modern art movement in the early 20th century. So she, so the education that she got in art was something that she just breathed in the air in her home. But all the other women um, went to college. Most of them went to graduate school. And in many cases, their high school educations were also important in getting them on a path towards education. So I would say that education was something that they that they all shared. Now, you talk about a Venn diagram in the women's lives. Could you explain that to the audience? Oh, yes. That reference comes up in the epilogue where I was trying to pull together some of the threads that joined these women. Um, And as I, you know, obviously each woman is an individual and will be unique circumstances for each life. But there were significant areas of overlap. And so as I thought, that's how I envisioned it in my mind. It was a Venn diagram with overlapping circles. Um, And we've just talked about education, but that was one of the areas where there was significant overlap among the women, that education was important to all of them in propelling them forward. Um, And another area that was important to all of them was family. Um, That probably is not surprising, but I nonetheless found it to be a sort of a profound takeaway from the research that I did. Family is a place where we absorb values, where we hear stories about our families and our predecessors that build a sense of self. And in many families, the parents are able to offer guidance to their children or in encouragement. Um, and I'll refer to, again, Dr. Muriel Petioni. She said something that I think is just profoundly true, which is that every child needs someone to say they can do something great. And when it's the parent who's saying that, that child is lucky. And in many of these cases, these women grew up in families where the the parents were able to offer that kind of encouragement. One example would be Dr. Martha Lee Powell. Um, When she was in high school, she was interested in science, and she told her parents she thought she wanted to be a nurse, which would have been a very acceptable thing for her to do in the 1930s. Her father said, no, you should be a doctor. That way you can be in charge. So she, she took his words to heart, and she did go to medical school, Um, She worked on the polio vaccine in the 1950s, and she became one of the country's most noted experts in childhood infectious disease. Um, But she, she followed that path because of her father's very explicit encouragement for her to go to medical school. Um, 
sort of at the other end of the spectrum is Mildred Dresselhaus. She was a scientist who eventually was the first woman to be a full tenured professor at MIT. In and of itself, that's quite an accomplishment. Her, she grew up in great poverty. Her parents were immigrants. Um, her father was unable to work because of some illness. Her mother had various menial jobs in working in an orphanage and then in factory. She was really an unskilled laborer. Um, And so her parents were not well acquainted with the American educational system and they weren't in a position to really give her a lot of guidance about how to get an education or what career she might pursue. They really didn't know anyone who had a college degree. However, her father had gotten both Mildred and her brother involved with Greenwich House, which was a settlement house in Lower Manhattan that had a, an excellent music school. And both of the children took music violin lessons at Greenwich House. And the staff at the music school could spot that Mildred was unusually bright and had a lot of potential, even though she was very young when she started her music lessons. And they really took her under their wing and gave her projects to do, had her work, do some writing for the internal newsletter that had her go to the movies, for instance, and write a review about a movie she would see. Um, And then when it became time for her to think about high school, they helped her get ready to take the exam for one of the competitive exam schools in New York City. And as Mildred said to me, that was really the big step for her. It got her into a good high school, which set her up to go on to college. It also, and maybe this was as important even later in life, was that it helped, it expanded her access to more middle-class girls. It was an all-girls school. Um, and so that she, she really broadened her social horizons at that point. Um, So that combined with the education was really important for her. So in that case, her her parents got her into the music school, um, and then that was part of the social safety net that helped her get ahead. Now, did you consciously select women to interview who were from immigrant families? I did not. And... Perhaps it should have occurred to me earlier in the process, but it wasn't until I was really working on the conclusion of the book that I realized that six out of the seven were either immigrants themselves or the daughters of immigrants. And that, to me, was one of the most surprising and important takeaways um, from the book. Um, Muriel Petioni was an immigrant from Trinidad. Uh, Frida Garcia was an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. Uh, And both of them came when they were pretty young. Um, The others were all daughters of immigrants, um, except for one, and that's Cordelia Hood. I mentioned her before. She was the intelligence analyst. She wasn't from an immigrant family, but she, her... um, Her family had moved from the East Coast of the United States to Oregon 
and were descendants of Daniel Boone. So part of her family ethos was this sort of pioneer mentality. Um, So so that she, that's what she brought to the table. But the others all came as with an immigrant um, sort of aspiration. And I know that immigrant status is not always uplifting for everyone. It can be difficult, but in, I think in these women's lives, um, immigration was perceived as a step towards a better life. Some of them came explicitly to find a better life um, for themselves and for their children. They were escaping religious persecution or political upheaval. So I think they all came to the United States with the expectation that things would be better. There could be. There were certainly challenges when they got here, but there there was a, a hopeful, optimistic outlook that they brought with them, and I think that may have had something to do with the fact that these women had the self assurance and the optimism about their careers that they that propelled them into success. Now, what was the relationship between the women's ambition and religion? <laughs> That's, a, that's also something I, I didn't think about at the time, and it really until I had sort of compiled my research and my interviews. Um, I didn't ask any woman explicitly about her religion, but what it turned out was that a number of the women were Jewish. Some of them grew up in families where they were religiously observant, others not. Um, But I think that there was something about the sort of intellectual background and um, interest in education that's part and very often part and parcel of um, Jewish culture that benefited the women. in one case, one woman was brought up, I'm speaking about Frida Garcia here, was brought up Catholic. And I think that that worked both for and against her. In some ways, um, her, her family was quite traditional, including in terms of religion, and wanted her to sort of um, not be as ambitious as she was. On the other hand, um, as she put it, she was a headstrong young girl, and she convinced her mother that she should that she wasn't getting the kind of education she deserved in the public school system, and that she should go to a private girls' Catholic school where she would be a boarding student. And she persuaded her mother to send her to uh, this boarding school in New Jersey. Um, and the nuns there again recognized her potential. Uh, and convinced her mother that Frida, as they put it, was college material. So in that sense, um, religion is one, the influence of the nuns is one thing that got Frida and her family to recognize that she ought to go to college. So again, I didn't ask any of the women about their religion, but in the stories that they told me about their lives, it, it came out, and often religion was a saving grace because it, it got them into education. 
Now, what role did the Exxon High Schools play for the women? Well, in Frida's case, um, she had the grounding that she needed to go to college, and she had the nuns convincing her family that she should go to college. So that that was obviously key for her. Um, in Mildred Dresselhaus's uh, life, she went to um, Hunter College High School, and as she and she's told me that that was the the, the big stepping stone in her life was both in terms of education and in broadening her social outlook. Um, and from there, she went to Hunter College. She then got a, she then went to Radcliffe for a master's degree in physics, and then she went to the University of Chicago for her PhD. Um, but without that first step, she probably wouldn't have had that path into higher education. Um, I think it for all of them, their high schools were important. Um, I'm thinking of Martha Lee Pau, um, the one who was the doctor who worked on the polio vaccine. Um, she went to Cleveland Heights High School. Um, and as she, she told me that Cleveland Heights was very close to Shaker Heights, the suburban town that borders Cleveland. And as she put it, Cleveland Heights High School was just as good as Shaker Heights High School, even though they had more money. Um, as she put it, the all the, all the families whose children went to Cleveland Heights High School were ambitious for their kids and that there was, a, again, a sense of aspiration within those high school walls. Um, and for her, it got her into Oberlin College and then into medical school. So, uh, you know, I think for all of them, high school was an important stepping stone educationally and in shaping their social outlook. Now, you talked about the role of fathers. What role did the fathers have in encouraging these successful women? Usually it was a very positive experience. Two of the women actually grew up without a father presence. Um, Frida moved to to New York with her mother and her brother, her father stayed behind in the Dominican Republic. Her parents were at that point separated and eventually divorced. Um, so that she she did not have a strong paternal influence when she moved to the United States. Um, the, the Another one who, whose father became absent was Rhea Zobel. She's Judge Rhea Zobel. She's a federal judge in Massachusetts. Um, she grew up in Germany. And she lived in Germany during World War II with both of her parents. As soon as the war was over, she lived in the eastern part of Germany. The town where she lived was handed over to the Soviet army. And the Soviet soldiers came to her house one day and took away her father. And she was, I think, 13 at the time. She never saw her father again. So although she had had the benefit of him for the first 13 years of her life in her more formative teen years he was out of her life entirely um, and in, in fact so was her mother um, a couple days after they had taken away her father the Soviet soldiers returned and took away her mother um, she then eventually she was a refugee and eventually got to the United States with her younger brother where they lived with her aunt and uncle um, and it wasn't until she was in law school 
something like 10 years later that her mother surfaced and she had been in a Soviet prison for 10 years. Um, so for those two women, their fathers were not were not available to them in their teen years. But for Martha Lee Powell, I mentioned her father convinced her to go to medical school instead of nursing school. Um, I think Cordelia Hood's father, he worked for Oregon Senator Charles McNary in Washington, D.C., so that when she entered um, the Office of Selective of um, Strategic Services during the war to do intelligence work, I think her father's career in government was influential. Um, she saw government work as a force for good. And so I think that there was that kind of um, influence. Uh, Dalit Ipkar, who was an artist, her father was also an artist. And he spent a lot of time with her, taking her, when she wasn't in school, taking her to galleries and art receptions, taking her to museums, and explaining to her how he, how he studied art for himself. As she explained it to me, they would go to, for instance, the Metropolitan Museum in New York and go to the ancient galleries and look at one piece of art, and he would study it. And that way of, and then they go to another gallery and look at one other thing. Um, so that way of studying art and incorporating, incorporating it into his own artistic practice is something that she's told me she did for herself, that very um, calm, deliberate study of a piece of art um, to inspire her set, her own work um, is something that she got from her father. She also got a lot of encouragement from him. And in fact, I talk about um, a sort of a psychological theory of young girls' development and the importance of their fathers. I gather it's typical for girls to want to individuate themselves from their mothers. And they often look to their fathers for guidance and how to do that. And when their fathers spend time with them and take them seriously in whatever their dreams or ambitions are, it can have a really enhancing effect and give the girls the self-confidence that they should go forward with whatever their dreams are. And also when they get to be adults, they have a certain vitality about their work that comes from the fact that their fathers, who usually were the working parent, at least in this era, um, it sort of translates from their fathers to their daughters, the interest in work and the vitality they bring to it. So I think in that sense, all of the, these women, inherit, they, they got that kind of serious attention from their fathers that they then translated into their interest in their own work. Now, looking at women balancing family, how did they handle childcare? Well, yeah, all five, five of, out of the seven uh, had children. And they all had, except for Dalav Ipkar, had help outside, from outside the family. Uh, Dalav, by the time she had children, was living in rural Maine. Uh, she and her husband cultivated vegetables and had cows, but her, her husband handled most of the dairy business 
and she had a studio and where she painted and did her children's book work. Um, and she was able to incorporate her own child care with that work. Um, so she did not have help from outside the home. The other mothers did, and they couldn't have had their careers without help. Um, and, and I talked to all of them about the women who were in their lives as childcare workers. Um, Martha Lee Powell used a, a hired a woman named Gussie Walker um, to take care of her children when she, she both she and her husband were doctors and they when they were not at home, Gussie Walker took care of their kids. Gussie had grown up in eastern Alabama and had nothing more than a third grade education. And she probably didn't have a lot of options for her own career. Um, and she worked for the Lee Powell family for a very long time and initially in Cleveland and then moved to Connecticut when they moved um, to take different jobs. Gussie moved with them and took care of their kids in, in Connecticut, where not only did she take care of the children, but she learned to drive. She had never had a driver's license, but they sent her to driving school so that she would be able to take care of the kids after school and take them to their soccer games or to visit friends at their houses, etc. Um, so that, that was a, um, a really interesting example of, you know, what education or lack thereof had done for these two different women, one who was a doctor, one who had a third grade education. Um, Mildred Dresselhaus, the scientist at MIT, she had four children. She had a very helpful husband, but he also was a physicist at MIT. So they were also reliant on childcare. They uh, used a woman who lived in their neighborhood who took care of their kids. I think she was with the family for, for decades. Um, and as Mildred said to me, um, their child care worker was similar to her mother, who was also an unskilled laborer. Um, she had she really didn't have any other options other than do, to do child care work. So to me, the looking at the kind of women who took care of these women's children, it really was about child care work for them was one of the better opportunities that was available because of their lack of education and lack of other options. But I, I feel so strongly about um, having <laughs> used people to take care of my son when I was at the office. Um, I know how important it is to have a good strong and reliable relationship with whoever's providing the childcare. Um, that I, I did ask all the women who were mothers about that, even though I realized that if I were interviewing men, I might not ask them about childcare. But although I probably should if I had the opportunity to interview men, um, but it, since I know how important it is in any family's life, I made it a point to ask the women about what they use for childcare. Now, what message do you want the audience to take away from your book? Well, I want them to know that these really were incredible women, and they all had extremely interesting lives. They faced challenges of all sorts, but they, they, 
they were just jam-packed with interesting events in their lives. Um, so I guess that's the first takeaway. Um, but two other things. One is they grew up in a different historical moment. Um, some of them were born before women's suffrage. They all came of age before civil rights legislation in the 1960s. And they faced incidents of discrimination that probably would not exist today. I know that there continue to be challenges and hurdles, but I, but because we've made up, we have made progress. I'm optimistic that more progress can be made. So I think there's an optimistic takeaway from this. And the other takeaway that I would want people to have is, what does ambition mean? And I use ambition in the subtitle of the book. If you look in the dictionary, ambition is defined to be a strong desire to achieve something such as fame or fortune. But none of these women went into their careers for fame or fortune. And I think it's important to broaden the definition of ambition and to think about it in a new way. They all had a strong desire to use their talents in a way that they would find fulfilling. They wanted to use their intellect, their emotional intelligence, their people skills in careers outside the home. And they did it in a real genuine and conscientious pursuit of substantive work. They weren't out just to make a lot of money or to become well-known. Um, but And for most of them, their sense of purpose included something greater than themselves. Their work had a benefit to other people, and that was intentional. They went into their fields knowing that they could help other people. And to me, that's a better more realistic and more flattering definition of ambition. So that's really what I would like people to take away from these women's lives, that they, for me, they redefined the meaning of the word ambition. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. What is the next project you'll be working on? Well, immediately I'm going to return to doing art reviews and book reviews that I've I've always done. I've just taken a little hiatus while I got the book published. Um, And I would, in addition to that, I'd like to write essays about women, historical women and women of today. Um, Working on this book and doing all the historical research really opened my eyes to a lot of points about women's history, and I'd like to continue to incorporate that in my writing. As for my next book, I'm not really ready to talk. I have an idea. It is so embryonic that I'm not really ready to to go public with it. Um, But I think it's going to be something, a slice of contemporary society, probably with a historical background, but a more contemporary look at society. But for now, it's going to be essays and book reviews and art reviews. That sounds great. Well, thank you for being on our show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.